Hey everyone, and welcome back to Bottomless Coffee Podcast. I am Jerome Evans, all over the magical interwebs at at Jerome T. Evans. Uh, And today we are talking with author and clinical psychologist, Dr. Mary Flett, about aging and in particular about aging with finesse and grace and the conversations that we as slightly younger people will need to have with those uh, parents of ours who are hopefully aging with that finesse and grace. Welcome, Mary. How are you? You are so kind to have me, Jerome, and I am so excited and looking forward to this conversation. It's a pleasure, and I think you've really carved out a great niche for yourself because most people are avoiding these conversations. <laughs> you, you know what's interesting, Jerome? I, I've been in this business professionally for over 30 years, but I started taking care of my grandfather when I was 11 years old. So I kind of think of myself as always having been working with aging adults. And I just assumed that I was this lonely voice in the desert and I would only ever be around here. But honestly, now I'm a little bit jealous because so many people are discovering that they're getting older. Who knew? Who knew? And and what comes of that is what I'm so excited to be talking about with you today is this awareness that one life does come to an end, but what's different about the baby boomer generation is we are living longer, better, and really have more to offer and can contribute much longer than any generation before. And that's new and different. So we have to have a new and different way of looking at aging. Agreed. And I think, um, again, for those of us who are the children of boomers, there's kind of a kind of a surprise. We're like, how long are my parents going to be living? And what are they going to expect? You know, and and I'm just going to put a little bit of a twist on what you're saying. I think we've been conditioned to think about aging chronologically. So you live to 75, 85, 95, 100. Um, But the truth of the matter is, is you can be old at any age. And you can be a younger person in a chronologically older body. Um, what we need to do is really start looking at and having conversations about quality of life. Uh, and that's where the challenge lies. So, you know, what does it mean for somebody who is quiet and prefers to be with themselves and doesn't really like getting out and about, regardless of their health condition, to be older? You know, because we have this image that reclusive people, there's something wrong with them. We got to get them out and move them around, but we don't. And what happens when an older person who is maybe more garrulous, gregarious, is out and about and doing things, but is doing risky things and needs to kind of be talked to? Uh, How do you do that as a child? of an elder. So these are the nuances I think that we're working with and it's it's broad and it's open and there's plenty of room to come up with new strategies that are really supportive in helping us all age with finesse. I was about to ask you if that's what you are describing. Is that aging with finesse? Just like the particular way that you want to age or an individual kind of aging, not program per se, but lifestyle? You know, having a language to talk about growing older is really limited. Um, When I was doing my studies in grad school, the way they talked about being old was you were the young old, the old, and the older old. Wow. And that was 30 years ago. Um, We've come a long way since then. Now we talk about the young old, the old, the older old, and the oldest old. Great. So, you know, we, we don't have a language yet to talk about the great variability uh, that there is out in the world. But I'll tell you this, there are many, many words that shouldn't be used. And I'm going to be that strong about it. Um, don't call an older person senior. Oh, you get okay. to be a senior if you're graduating from high school and from college. But after that, you're not a senior. Don't call an older person elderly. 
with the adjective on it because that makes them small and not very empowered. Elder, on the other hand, or aging adult, on the other hand, really opens up a conversation and okay. is far more inclusive. Okay, that's a fabulous first lesson within the first five minutes of our conversation. Elder, elder is the word. I love that. And aging adult, yes. Yes. So I, th I think um, you mentioned adults uh, who might be more garrulous, <laughs> more talkative. That sounds like us, and we are at different phases of our lives. Um, so uh, when you encounter an elder who is garrulous, uh, what is the best way? What did they need? So it's what they've needed all of their life. They need to be engaged. And sometimes that's conversation. Sometimes that's learning new things. Um, sometimes it's being valued for being a mentor and, and being given opportunities to teach and share and uh, really create a legacy that they can pass on to others. Um, we don't really change that much as we grow older. That's very reassuring to hear. <laughs> a change in somebody, uh, it's probably due to something that has happened that they have no control over as opposed to a personality change. So for example, um, a lot of aging adults experience arthritis or some form of chronic pain. Well, I got to tell you, I don't feel much like talking when I'm in pain. Sure. And if you notice that somebody isn't talking a lot, you might just check in with them and say, hey, what hurts? You know, similarly, when and we learned this in COVID. Oh my God, did we see this in COVID? When people are unable to stay connected, they're unable to go out, they're unable to interact with other people, they're, oh my God, unable to hug or touch or, or just receive good words from other people. We go into this dark hole. Humans are not yes. meant to be alone. Agreed. You know? Agreed. Is that kind of answering what you were asking? It's very helpful. And it's really making me think about the way uh, kind of that our society has set up systems to support people who are aging, because I think those systems are just like, you go to a home or you live at your own home. And that is, those, those are your options. <laughs> and it doesn't really matter if you're a talkative elder yeah. or aging adult or what have you. Um, so it's, so I, yeah. I'm, I'm hoping I'll be able to share some stories from, from my, my practice over the years. Um, I had a wonderful lesbian couple who I worked with. I just adored. They were in their home for like 35 years. They had everything set up just the way they wanted to. And unfortunately, one of the partners started to become cognitively challenged and so they both realized that they were going to have to leave their home because they weren't going to be able to stay there. And I looked around and looked around, and I'm straight, so I, that's that's an important piece of this story because I think, well, you'll see why. Um, I looked around this community, and I helped them to interview people and go to places, and we did all of these things of finding the right place that would be supportive and loving and all the rest of it. Well, they moved in, and guess what? They what? were the only lesbian couple. Oh. And while they were surrounded by people, they were more isolated than they had been when they were living in their home. And it just, it broke my heart. And, and I say that because it was not something that I even took into consideration. Yeah. And, and I think that's something that those of us who are in the straight community really do need to own that because we assume the world works the way we want it to work, it may not be a good fit. Now, good news is okay. that there are many, many more places uh, for that, that are embracing and are really um, much more inclusive and aware of the needs of aging gay couples. The problem is that it's a generational one. So uh, we can't eradicate the homophobia of previous generations. We can do our very, very best to educate, inform, and, and hopefully lower people's fears, which are based 
in some bizarre other world. Um, but I, I truly feel it's important now to, um, if you are in an older couple and you are looking to move into some sort of assisted living or a community, one of the questions you have to ask is how do you find treatment of other gays here? Um, it's just a necessity, I'm afraid. Well, I think, um, one, I agree with you. And I think it's a great reminder that uh, I live in Minneapolis. We're pretty inclusive here. Um, but sometimes, you know, to your point, when if, you, if I have to move to where my child is to be close to family for care, then I would need to ask those questions like that. I don't want to. I don't want to call out any red states, um, <laughs> but I would. I would want to make sure um, that I was well taken care of and like as close to community as possible, uh, given my circumstances. Now, would you call uh, what you're describing aging with finesse or more of um, in the? Is that in the five pillars of aging conversation? Sure. I there's really two things going on here. Five pillars of aging is um, the core model of my philosophy. And I actually have a whole educational program for folks uh, based on the five pillars. Uh, the five pillars are creating a legacy of values to leave behind you, staying engaged over the lifespan. And that changes depending on where you are in the lifespan. Learning to adapt and accommodate, which really goes to how do you age? How do you age in place? How do you age in community? Where do you find your forever home in many ways? Um, also then, how you address the spiritual questions of creating, finding, sustaining purpose and meaning, and coming to terms with the fact that you know we have end dates. And uh, there may be things that need to be addressed before we die. There may be dark legacies that we have to confront and hopefully be able to heal so that we don't have to go through that again in our next lifetime, if that's your belief system. Um, and then last, but certainly not least, is what I call emotional economics. And this boils down to four very simple things. Knowing that I am enough, knowing that I have enough, believing that there is enough, and being able to decide what's good enough for me. And that crosses emotional areas, it crosses friendship, it crosses relationship, but perhaps most importantly, um, it has to do with our capacity to accept ourselves and make really good choices for our own quality of life. That's the five pillars. F the Aging with Finesse is a blog I started oh. way back in 2018. <laughs> I love the phrase. Um, it's a weekly blog. And, you know, I came up with the, the title because none of the other words I could think of associated with aging made sense. Uh, you know, people talk about successful aging. Well, you know, what happens if you fail? Yeah. Uh, that just, I don't like that outcome. And uh, people talk about lifestyle change. And, you know, honestly, that just carries all kinds of social implications to it. Um, <laughs> Productive aging. That feels like I'm signing up for some job or You're something. Still like working. That. Yep. <laughs> yeah, it's still working there. So I really, really thought about how I wanted to be in the world as I was growing older. And I just like the word finesse. I want to do it with finesse. So I've yeah. been, as I say, writing this blog uh, since 2018. I've now put into a three series book three book series, my collection of blogs, and I'm getting ready to put a fourth one in there uh, that's going to be the COVID years. Um, oh, sure. I was the second person on the West Coast in, in Northern California to be diagnosed with COVID. No way. Uh, yeah, really. I, I'm not sure. I, you know, I always strive to be first, but I was <laughs> And it has been so fascinating to me because fortunately my symptoms were really quite mild, but unfortunately I do have long COVID oh, and no. it has impacted in so many ways how I am able to be in the world. 
So when I look back on my five pillars, I've really spent a lot of time adapting and accommodating to a body that is no longer cooperative. And um, I've become quite humbled with some of the things I've had to do and some of the things I've learned about what the limitations are, but also what the opportunities are. I don't know if I mentioned this before our conversation, but this podcast is sponsored, at least in part, by the Minnesota Department of Health. Um, And we've had conversations with people about long COVID in particular, and uh, it is this very strange medical mystery. Now, when you were talking about the five pillars, what I was really hearing, uh, the word that came to my mind was agency. And it sounds as though you are making determinations in the present about your future self. Is that the vibe? Is that is that right? You're, you're brilliant, and um, well, you've got you. it. I'm I'm willing to hand everything over to you, and you can take this forward. Um, agency. If my contractor was not drilling, and <laughs> I would be happy to speak for an hour. <laughs> oh God! Yes, isn't that the truth? There's so many generational and cultural issues that that come into play here. What we believe being old is supposed to be drives much of what we will, I say we, I'm talking about boomers in in sort of a cohort here. Sure. Um, What we believe and expect them to be capable of. And I have to tell you, I teach a class in in the five pillars called No Time Like the Present. And the first thing we do is say, who's that in the mirror? There is a chronological age that I have, but there's also this internal age that I have. What I've noticed about most of us is, especially those of us in our 70s, is that we have about a 30-year gap between our chronological age and our internal idea. The gap becomes problematic when we blame ourselves or hold ourselves accountable for things that realistically we're no longer able to do. Um, I've had both my hips replaced. I have bilateral hearing aids. I used to run around this country lecturing on diagnosis and uh, how to deal with people with mental illness. And I would do this piece in there every time that I would say, I can go from being a fully functional human being to being totally disabled just by taking my glasses off and my hearing aids out. What we don't realize in this culture, because we don't see people aging, is that there really is a great deal of capacity for doing things once we hit 65 and go up. But we have our image in our mind that we're stooped over in wheelchairs or on walkers. We can't hear. We drool. We somehow become incontinent. Um, And all of those stereotypes, if I haven't been emphatic enough, are incredibly negative and do not speak to agency. If anything, they speak to a need to be sequestered away from so that we don't somehow infect the rest of the population. I call that being in a golden ghetto. And uh, the fear of many of the folks that I have worked with over the years is that we one of two things. They will end up in a nursing home mm-hmm. or they will end up on the street. And it's interesting, the Pew Research Institute did a, did a poll on aging and 80% of people in that poll said um, they imagine they're going to die at home. In reality, only about 16% of us get to do that. Yeah. And the reason is because our healthcare system says you will go into the hospital and we will do absolutely everything under our control to keep you alive in spite of maybe the fact that you only have a day, a week, a month to live. And, and that to me is just insane. And to... Uh continue on with the insanity. In some places, you don't even have the right to end your own life on your own terms, Minnesota included. And so you almost, you know, you really don't get the choice but to uh, go into that healthcare system despite what you, the plans that you've made for yourself, um, which I find very strange and frustrating and kind of counterintuitive. 
I'm going to plug a book by a wonderful surgeon, writer, Atul Gawande, who wrote, this was a number of years ago now, uh, the book's titled Being Mortal. And it was about a conversation he had with his father who had been diagnosed with terminal cancer. Both of these men were surgeons. Both of these men understood at the highest level what the medical system can and cannot do. And the book was eye-opening because what they realized was it wasn't about medical care at all. It really was about these quality of life questions. And the issue of taking one's life becomes very muddy. Um, I've certainly worked with people who thought the only way to relieve their pain, and that pain could be physical, it could be emotional, um, it could be psychological, but the only way to relieve that pain was to end their life. Yeah. And in point of fact, with the right amount of support and care and connection, their lives didn't need to end. It's just that we didn't have the right team around them. That goes more to the systems we have in place. But I truly, absolutely believe that people should, this is agency again, be able to determine whether or not their life should be ended and then to end it with grace and dignity. Now, there are a number of movements in the country that are doing that. The legal side of this is possibly as bad uh, as anything else. I worked oh. with a couple where the husband had a very, very unique form of um, Lou Gehrig disease, ALS. And his was a very long, slow, incremental, painful, horrible leaving of his physical body. And because I live in California, um, we do have uh, assisted death here. And we were able to get a physician to go through the process and indeed, this gentleman was able to end his own life. Um, his wife was my patient. And we spent many, 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 many months before, during, and after his passing working through her own feelings of whether or not she'd done the right thing, whether or not it had been um, ethically and morally the thing that was right for her. I imagine. So uh, this isn't an easy question, and it's certainly not just solved by the passage of a law, but we do have a lot of educating that needs to be done. You know, I think anybody who has been through any of the great pandemics, especially with AIDS, many of us started working with people who were dying from AIDS, and that death was pretty horrible in the early days. Yeah. The legacy of that death and of watching friends that we knew and loved suffer was, I think many of us vowed we would, one, never leave anybody alone to die again, and two, that we would find other ways of helping people make their way out if they wanted it. Um, but as I say, it's not a clear-cut, clean thing to do. I want to spend more time talking about aging and the LGBTQ community in particular, but why don't we take a really quick coffee break before we have that conversation? Be right back. Okay, we've reached the cross-promotion part of the episode. As you've heard in this conversation and in some of the others, I've got more than a few thoughts on relationships, like the one with my husband, homeownership, like this squalorous fixer-upper, and adventures like the skydiving video that I posted on YouTube. Now I'm putting all of those thoughts, articles, and videos together at jeromeevans.com. Now that site is not funded through a grant from the Minnesota Department of Health, so there will be fewer reminders on there to get vaccinated for COVID-19, to ventilate your spaces, and mask, but you know, I want you to be healthy, so I might just do that for free anyway. We'll see. And you actually don't have to worry about keeping up with two websites because I'm going to centralize everything at patreon.com slash bottomlesscoffee, a site where you can follow all of the articles, podcasts, and TV show episodes for free. But there will also be exclusive paid subscriber stuff on there so we can keep the lights on around here, okay? Okay. 
cross-promotion complete. Let's get back to the conversation. Welcome back, everyone, to Bottomless Coffee Podcast. We are having a fabulous conversation on aging with Dr. Mary Flett. And you can find more about her, find out more about her at drmaryflett.com. That's F-L-E-T-T.com. And um, when we came out of the last segment, you briefly touched on the LGBTQ community. And you told a story earlier about how you'd worked with um, a couple of lesbians and help them secure housing. Do you find that you work a lot with members of the LGBTQ community? The short answer is no, <clears throat> but that just might be because they haven't felt comfortable revealing mm. their orientation to me. Sure. Uh, the f- I've um, I'm searching through my my mind here for the number of people that I worked with that have shared with me, like within the first two or three sessions uh, and have come presenting with issues around being gay, around uh, being happy or unhappy with their sexual orientation. Uh, Strangely enough, even though most people think that psychology, we spend a lot of time talking about sex, we don't. Uh, it's, I know it's hard to believe, isn't it? What do you Uh, talk about? (laughs) Really? It's really boring. With, with many aging adults, I bring up the conversation, particularly after they've lost a partner, uh, and say, you know, many of us have been in relationships that were not, uh, always healthy Uh, Many of us have been in relationships or had, unfortunately, early childhood exposure to abuse and terror. Um, So I I invite people in our sessions to talk about these dark legacies that they've come up with. And I'm thinking of one patient I have in particular right now who um, has always feared being gay, but he lived a perfectly straight life and it's, it's a conversation that we have when it is a thought that comes up that stops him from connecting with another human being. And sure. I'm pausing here only, only because we don't have the conversation of, are you gay or are you not gay? We have a conversation of who do you love and who do you want to love you? And this goes to our cultural norms. You know, so many people grew up with prohibitions against expressing love for another human being, regardless mm-hmm. of what the gender was, uh, at least in my generation. I shouldn't speak much more broadly than that. I think, and, I think it, ha- it was still going in my generation, but the generation after me seems to be very free. Oh, thank God. Agreed. No, it's taken Agreed. too long. It's taken too long. So one of the things that I see, uh, I used to staff several different skilled nursing facilities, and particularly in units where people had cognitive impairment. And one of the most interesting things as people progressed with their impairment was their sexual identities just fell aside. And people were loving each other. As a matter of fact, a funny story, at least funny to me, it may not be funny to other people, but professionally funny. Um, Many nursing homes will have family members. Let me take a step back here. When a person is no longer able to make decisions for themselves, often a family member will be identified as the person to go and get permission from. Yes. So um, I have a friend for whom that is the case. Her father was in advanced stages of Alzheimer's. And she got a call one day from the skilled nursing facility asking her to come in and sign a sexual consent form. And she was thinking, well, why? My father isn't, you know, interested in doing this. Well, it turns out he wanted to make love to his next door neighbor who was a guy. Never been any indication of, you know, preference for males or not. And, um, you know, so there, there is a dropping away of sexual identity per se, but not sexuality. So we remain sexual beings. Another funny story, professional for me, again, some people may find this very strange. Again, in the nursing home, 
I was called in to solve a problem between roommates. One roommate who was fairly well um, still with it cognitively had a very high sexual urge and she would masturbate almost every night. Oh my God. Well, she was kind of loud about masturbating. <laughs> Her roommate was, needless to say, not happy with this. And so the nursing director brought me in and I was supposed to have the sex talk with the person who was masturbating. And I was like, no, I'm not going to do that because this is like, you know, one thing that makes her feel good and why not? What the heck? Sure. So the solution, I won't be, make this a very long story. The solution was we switched roommates to a woman who was deaf. Oh, wonderful. So, yeah. They're, they're just, again, we remain sexual living beings, but how we act on them and the rules and the prohibitions, those can go away as we age. I'm kind of hearing the that danger. our constructs fall away. These, these boxes yeah. that we build for ourselves, that, we've, um, that we put ourselves in, you know, as you get older, you have that the mentality of who cares? <laughs> I'm old, who cares? It's, it's real. Yeah. I, I do have to put a caveat in Please. there though, Jerome. Um, outside of a care facility, um, I really encourage people, you absolutely must get tested for sexual diseases. Oh, yeah. Um, the highest rate of transmission of HIV in people over 65 is because men don't use condoms. And, yep. you know, barebacking has always been a pleasure for so many people. And again, of my generation, it was what most gay men started with. And then to have to put a condom, I was like, oh, my God. Uh, but the reality is that it's just safer and get tested and, and wear that sleeve. Amen, sister friend. Amen. <laughs> um, as a community, we are just coming out of, hopefully coming out of, um, what's a, bl a blip of monkeypox. Hopefully not yeah. an era or will not be an era of monkeypox. And so I, I think that caveat is well-received and always a fantastic reminder of the need to play safe uh, if you're going to play polyamorously. Uh, but even safe if you're going to be monogamous. But that's what's safe in a monogamous monogamous relationship just might look different than if you're being um, polyamorous. Yeah, you know, and and I even like to talk about it as just as being respectful. Yes, agreed, agreed. So, okay then. Uh, put that not, to bed. You're not hearing. Uh, you're not having a lot of conversations with uh, people who are in the LGBTQ community because. Those constructs kind of fall away. But for those of us who are still living in those constructs, we are younger. So really, I would say anyone who has aging parents, um, what advice do you tend to give uh, to those people um, in general? I'll keep it broad, and then we'll narrow it as we go. Sure, 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 <laughs> sure, sure. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take it out of the context of LGBTQ. Um, we all have relationships with parents yeah. and there are a lot of things that influence those relationships. <laughs> you know? uh -huh. um, <laughs> what, what we're permitted to talk about and what we're not permitted to talk about. But I, I, broadly speaking, I think most children realize that at some point they are going to play a role in caring for their parents. Now, interestingly, way back in the 1960s when these um, assisted living, not assisted living, I'm sorry, um, 55 and older communities first got started. The, the original one was Del Webb in Arizona, and now it's the villages in Florida. Okay. Um, these became places of refuge for people 65 and older who wanted to downsize, wanted some fun and lifestyle and not, not necessarily caring for children and grandchildren anymore. Um, with that said, that was 40, 50, almost 50 years ago. And we've seen a lot of changes in what it means to be living in community. Okay? Mm. Aging in place is a challenge these days. Children move because they have to economically. Grandchildren and children move because of climate change. I yes. really think one of the biggest factors 
making most people, well, we're living, I mean, look at what happened down in Florida, um, that most people are moving now is not just money, but is it safe? I live in Northern California. We now have fire season. Yeah. And I've been seriously contemplating whether or not it makes sense to move somewhere else. Um, I did not have a close relationship with my mother. Um, I'm an only child. I knew that I was going to be responsible for caring for her. Her one wish was to stay in the family home. And she lived in southeastern Wisconsin. Um, I live in California. Yeah. The way we negotiated that is that I would go home twice a year and spend, God willing, an entire week with her, which was challenging for both I'm of us. I'm hearing that. I'm hearing that. And, yeah. And uh, then... I would rely on her friends and her community to be there and let me know what was going on. So I was kind of hovering. The good news is my mother had this wonderful personality where she just got people to fall in love with her. I was not one of them, but the rest of the world did. So she had a lot of people who cared for her. She started to fall in her home and it wasn't safe anymore. And we had done everything. My husband and I would done everything we could to make her home safe, but it wasn't anymore. And I literally got a call from one of her wonderful, wonderful pseudo children who said she needs to find a place to live. And within 72 hours, I was able to get her into an assisted living facility. Oh, wow. Two things happened. Okay. One, um, the move was the hardest thing that she ever had in her life. It was like extracting all of her teeth. Yeah. It was just terrible on yeah. her. And it took her several years to actually recover from that. So that's just a heads up. Mm. Um, the second thing was we became closer. Oh, really? Because I was no longer worried about her 24-7. Oh, Interesting. And I think that's the dynamic that really is the most important in the parent-child care dynamic is helping your parents understand that as an adult child, your role is no longer to be the child, but to be the helpmate, the support, the um, rudder, maybe the, I don't know, I can't come up with the right metaphor, but to, to really help keep the parent stable and safe. It's no longer to do as I say. Yeah. That sometimes is a very difficult role for the parent to give up because that goes to what you said initially, agency. So negotiating that, how can I help you mom or dad stay as independent as possible? And how can you help me not worry about you quite so much? Now, now that's in the most perfect of worlds. Right. I was about to get into an imperfect world for you. (laughs) Yeah. So maybe let's start with what we might have happen. The the, the imperfect world is where there's been, you know, particularly some terrible, horrible, unresolved thing that's happened between parent and child. Um, Or when they're siblings. That that was the example. That's what I was going to throw at you. Yes. Siblings. See, Um, I have a, I have a neighbor whose mother just passed and, uh, she and her sister, her sister knows everything and knew what was supposed to be done, but wanted nothing to do with mom. And my neighbor, uh, was just there with her mom and had very little judging going on. The two sisters were able to come together, fortunately, and they were, I think, blessed to be with her mother when she died. Mm. Um, But what happens is the parent dies and all of a sudden you have this vacuum, this, this reordering, you know, pardon the expression here, but we saw this and we're seeing it with what happened with Queen Elizabeth, right? I mean, her kids, kids in their (laughs) seventies are trying to figure out, you know, what do we do now that mom is gone? Yeah. And, and this resettling, renegotiating of position happens. If it didn't, Shakespeare would not have been as famous an author as he was. Um, <laughs> do you find um, that kind of constructed gender roles often uh, have a, a say, let's say, 
And um, who ends up taking care of or providing care, being the caregiver for, the primary care caregiver for the age, the elder uh, adult? I, in a previous conversation, I, and I don't remember the statistics, but it's, it sounds like it's often the sister or daughter who is kind of left with the responsibility, sometimes even this unspoken responsibility that she will be the one who takes care of the parents when that time comes. Um, does that, has that been playing out in your experience? Absolutely. And I think that's culturally rooted. Um, in cultures where there is intergenerational um, sharing and exchange, it's typically grandmother to daughter to granddaughter that the caring roles are modeled and passed down. Uh, the grandfather, son, grandson tend to be, again, it's very stereotypical, but culturally oriented in this culture, that you all are absolutely incapable of doing anything domestic or caring. So uh, <laughs> yeah, that unfortunately, uh, usually ends up being what I call an implicit expectation. And the only way around that that I know that is successful is, is to really sit down and identify the strengths of each individual hmm. and work as a team to provide the broadest support for the parent. So, for example, uh, again, purely gendered. Boys are better with numbers. Girls are better with cooking. Yeah. So I can't tell you how many women I have worked with who my husband took care of all the bills. And when husband goes, mm -hmm. they literally have no clue about how to run a household, what bills need to be paid, where you need to go to get the car fixed. And, and I, just, I roll my eyes because that to me just seems like so 1950s and Beaver's mom. Yeah. Um, that's changing a little bit. But just that's a changing little bit. A little bit. But it has to be an explicit setting. And uh, just to put a plug in here, I have this course called No Time Like the Present. I was going to say, we, we should plug that you actually provide this service, right? <laughs> that's right. Yeah, I'm not going to leave you hanging here. Um, no Time Like the Present is a six-week course where we systematically go through these various aspects of aging. And one of them that we spend time with is uh, just pulling together your health care, your home care, your care team, which includes, you know, where are you going to get your food? Where are you going to get your um, driving needs? Um, I happen to live out in the country, I, which I adore. But the other day, my car wouldn't start. And I, I just, I realized how isolated I would be if I didn't have my car. Hmm. Uh, so until something happens, that's not the best time to do your planning. And unfortunately, that's when many of us do do our planning because yeah. denial of all of these things is so incredibly strong. I uh, have to admit that is definitely me. The other night, my um, my husband sat down on the couch and he was like, what do you want to happen to you after you die? And I was like, we're not having this conversation. <laughs> Just like immediate, an immediate wall. And um, no, there was no specific reason. Well, I wasn't, I wasn't doing anything that was more interesting or fun, let's say. But that was not, I, I was not willing to have that conversation in that moment. And if you came in here right now, I'd still be like, uh, I don't think so. But at you least know, scheduling I, with you, right, would give, would give me like the ability to mentally prepare for a conversation that my whole being is not interested in having. So, so I call this rehearsal. Yes. You know, and that's what we have to do. We don't have a script. Okay. So if you're not good at improv, <laughs> then you need to have a rehearsal and explore some of these things. The good news is nobody has ever failed dying. Ooh. Fair. 100% success rate. <laughs> you can do it, everybody. <laughs> you know, and, and as I said earlier, this is really about quality of life questions. So 
having a conversation not about dying with your husband, but about, you know, if if you aren't able to move around like you are now, what would be important to you? Yeah. Well, that's a really useful conversation. Agreed. You know, and if if all of a sudden um, you had to, I don't know, I should come up with something different here. If you um, if you couldn't walk anymore, what would be important to you in terms of being out in nature? What would be? Well, you're in Minneapolis. What would be important to you for the three days of summer? Uh, <laughs> they are very precious. They're precious. <laughs> Turn my head to the sun. Yes, and I mean, even now we've got uh, our only bath. Only the primary bathroom is on the second floor. There's no bathroom on the main floor. You know, I don't have to be old to not be able to walk. <laughs> yeah. So, what what is the plan if something happens, and are we prepared for it? You know, and in almost every other area of our life, Jerome, we have plans. We have plans for, you know, our retirement or 401ks or, you know, whatever, whatever's going down the tubes at the moment. We have plenty, we spend more time figuring out who's going to take care of our cars. Yep. You know, um, and, and if I can just drop a hint here right now, for those of your listeners who may be 65 and older, uh, this is what I call open hunting season on, on elders Because Medicare Advantage plans are out to take your money right now. And it's open enrollment for Medicare. And you will see ad after ad after ad about you're missing out on hearing aids and dentists and all the rest of this. Well, you're not missing out on anything. The only thing you're missing out on is paying for an insurance company to make more money. So if you see those ads, ignore them. Stick with original Medicare. There. That's my plug. Okay. That's a solid plug. Well, we're going to take another coffee break, but I do want to plug from, from I will plug uh, dot com. if you are interested in setting up uh, any of these conversations or viewing some of her courses. We'll be right back. We are back with Bottomless Coffee Podcast. We're having an amazing conversation with Dr. Mary Flett at drmaryflett.com, F-L-E-T-T. And uh, Mary, one of the questions that's kind of spontaneous, I just came across on Twitter, where a friend of mine said she looked at her aging parent and just started crying. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm about to have a conversation about exactly this. Um, And so I tweeted at you and you haven't seen it yet. Um, But is is this common? Is this something that you encounter? It's definitely something I encounter, and and I applaud your friend for having that much insight and self-awareness, because what we see in our parents as they age is our future. Mm. And that also means that we have to come to terms that we are mortal beings. Um, I made light of it earlier, but we have this notion that we're going to go on forever, and we're not. We're not guaranteed anything more than this moment. And for anybody who has lost a parent, that's an interesting phrase, for anybody whose parent has already died, you realize how adrift you are without that person leading the way. So from the time you were born, you had somebody holding your hand, somebody feeding you, somebody caring for you, somebody there who you knew you could always count on, or somebody who you could always be angry with and blame things on. When that's taken away, it's like jumping off without a net. And you realize that you have to be an adult on your own. So I think for some people, that's when fear comes up, Mm. but also a longing, a longing and a recognition that, that we really are connected to something so much bigger than just our individual lives. But you know, once you do kind of resolve that feeling within yourself, I think out of that, you do gain agency. Um, And you're just bringing this to my mind. I'm actually Jerome Evans the fourth, and I'm the only Jerome Evans that's alive. My dad died somewhat suddenly. And so when his obituary was printed and when the programs were printed at his funeral, 
they all said Jerome Evans. <laughs> they all had my name on them. And so yeah. it was very much like living through my own funeral. And I ha- I did spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, well, what is your obituary going to say? Why is it going to say that? Like, what are the things that you need to do between now and whatever you have, you do actually die, Jerome, to live the life that you are going to be proud of, that you, that you want to live? Um, and so those are kind of how I make my decisions. That's how I ran for office. That's how I have a podcast. That's why I have a TV show, you know, because it's like, who cares? We're all going to die. Like, go for it. <laughs> You know, and 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 I'm appreciating that you're saying that with with energy and levity, and it's also an acknowledgement, um, yeah. and a very brave one. You know, I mean, my tagline is "Confront the difficult while it's still easy," and that comes from Lao Tzu, who is this wonderful Chinese mystic guy, uh, recognizing that if we deal with things before they become too overwhelming. And not even solve the problems, but just admit that there might be something there that needs to be addressed. We're taking a step in support of who we are becoming yes. and recognizing who we are. And that's a you talked about agency within the first few sentences of this podcast. Mm-hmm. And that really is about ownership of that agency. Well, I was going to ask you. If you had any messages that you wanted to make sure that our audience leaves with, but I think that is going to be it. Um, you, you nailed it on the head, and this has been a beautiful, engaging, and I think really valuable conversation. I'd, I'd like defy any listener <laughs> to leave this conversation thinking that they didn't take anything out of it. So really, thank you, Mary. Thank you very much. And Jerome, thank you for just being so open and being willing to talk about this. I had such a good time. Yes. On the other side of that fear is agency and joy. Uh, If you want to connect with Dr. Mary Flett, her website is drmaryflett.com. This has been Bottomless Coffee with Jerome. I'm Jerome Evans all over the internet at at Jerome T. Evans. And you can stream our podcast and TV show at bottomlesscoffeeshow.com. Thanks, everybody.